0: You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. What is actually controlling the decisions that you make? We tend to think that we're making our decisions on our own self accord on our own free will, but in reality, what's making our decisions are our very deeply embedded psychological programs. We might be thinking that we're making a decision on a food choice, for example, right now in our adult pants as a big old grown-up, but in reality, it could be a expression from us or an experience based on something that happened in our childhood that's driving a decision that we're making right now. And oftentimes, we have no idea that this old self is making decisions for our new self. Now, this is a wonderful field for us to examine because we have the ability to kind of zero in and change these patterns, to change the decisions that we're making right now, but it takes work. And this is why oftentimes decisions tend to be harder when we're trying to make a new decision for ourselves right now. Our minds and our biology can kind of fight back. Like you know you're not really about that life. you know you don't really want to make this healthier choice. It might be easy the first time or two, but because our minds are hardwired to replicate behavior patterns, it can be difficult to jump in there and to start to pull apart that nerve that's been firing, that system, that pathway that's just been recruiting so much myelin over months and years of firing the same way, making those same choices, to kind of start to break down that pathway and to create new ones we oftentimes have to do some internal work, some internal investigation and really zero in on what and how we're creating our decisions. And to do that work, oftentimes we have to get some outside input. We have to learn how this stuff works because for the vast majority of us, we're not exposed to this kind of information. And if you look at what's happening in our society at large, oftentimes we're making decisions for our health that are not advantageous? Why would we do things to hurt ourselves? That should be a huge red flag that's popping up, that fundamental question, why are we doing things that hurt ourselves and we know they're not good for us? And oftentimes, again, it's not based on logic, it's based on programming. It's based on our habitual patterns, especially those from earlier in life. So on today's episode, we're gonna look at what's happening with our psychology, what's happening behind the scenes so that we can start to use that information, use that empowerment to make more positive decisions moving forward. But awareness is key. We always start with awareness because it's the first domino. And we've got one of the most remarkable people to help us to start to do this internal investigation. And I am so excited about this episode. And also our special guest is the vice president of one of the most renowned brain health companies, in the world, aiming Clinics. They've done over 200,000 SPECT imaging scans, literally looking at the brain to see functionality, to see brain activity, and how certain lifestyle factors, certain experiences in life, certain nutritional implements, how this stuff really affects our brain in the real world. Not just guessing, but actually looking at the brain. So in her specific field, She's an expert in nutrition. So we're gonna be talking a little bit about that. And one of the things we're gonna kick things off with is talking about olive oil. And researchers at Auburn University actually uncovered that oleocanthal-rich olive oil is able to help to reduce brain inflammation. And neuroinflammation, inflammation of the brain is one of the fastest growing epidemics in our world. Some of the offshoots, of course, are dementia and Alzheimer's. But what's largely not considered is the impact that it has on our metabolism when our brain is essentially on fire. Now, research that was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, the researchers uncovered that there's this really shocking occurrence taking place with neuroinflammation and nutritional diseases. Namely, what they denoted was that brain inflammation is a causative factor for obesity, and obesity is a causative factor or neuroinflammation. So our growing waist size is creating inflammation in our brains. And our brains, with this heightened state of inflammation, is contributing to dysregulation with our metabolism. Specifically, they noted it was hypothalamic inflammation. So this is well noted to be the kind of master gland in the human brain, this hypothalamus. It has a huge regulating influence over our metabolism, over even our ability to assimilate calories from our food. There's this really interesting connection between our brain and our gut. And researchers at Yale University uncovered that the human brain, based on its assessment, not that it's factual because of dysregulation, its assessment of your caloric needs, even if you might have a hundred extra pounds on your body because of this metabolic dysfunction your brain could still be under the impression that you are lacking caloric intake. And it can literally send signals to your gut to increase the assimilation of calories from the food that you're eating, or based on its assessment, decrease the assimilation of calories from the food that you're eating. Again, this is some of those prestigious universities in the world are doing this work. And most people have no idea about this. They're just still in this calories in, calories out paradigm, and not looking at what are the epigenetic influences? What are the controlling factors over what your body actually does with the calories you consume? This is a level above that. Again, epicaloric controllers. Calories matter, absolutely. And if we're looking for weight loss, caloric deficit, sure. But if we're not understanding how these systems actually work and what's controlling our body's regulation of calories, we're really missing the point. So knowing that inflammation in the brain is a causative agent in obesity obviously doing things that help to reduce neuroinflammation is going to be one of the most important things for us to focus on and again researchers at Auburn University found that olive oil extra virgin olive oil oleocanthal rich high quality extra virgin olive oil can help to reduce neuroinflammation specifically helping to heal this is the crazy thing helping to heal the blood-brain barrier. There's some kind of remarkable intelligence in that food source. I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't care if the olive oil is wonderful or not. The data shows that there's something really special about it, and more people should be aware of this information. But as we're gonna talk about with our special guest, the quality matters. Another nutrition source that needs to get more attention and its benefit for our brains is spirulina. A study published in PLOS One, the Public Library of Science, showed that spirulina has strong potential to prevent and even reduce inflammation in the brain. Something special about it. Spirulina is the most dense source of protein ever discovered, gram for gram. It's a complete protein containing all nine essential amino acids, also, a rich source of vitamins and minerals like B vitamins, copper. And even rare compounds like phycocyanin, a study funded by the National Institutes of Health. They've been in the news a lot lately, but there's some other stuff that they've published that most people don't know about. They're not looking at what are some of the beneficial things out here. Revealed that spirulina promotes stem cell genesis, the creation of new stem cells. What are stem cells? What do they do? They become essentially any cell that you need. All right. We need that seed cell in order to regenerate. Our tissues, whether it's for our brain or for our joints. There are very few foods that have this capacity, and spirulina is one of them. Now, you take spirulina and combine it with chlorella, which is another one of the highest protein dense foods ever discovered. It's about 50% protein by weight. Spirulina is about 71% protein by weight. Chlorella contains lutein and zeaxanthin, and these are two carotenoids that have been found to help to protect some of the offshoots of our nervous system and our brain, like our eyes. And also, it's a dense source of omega-3s. Just three grams of chlorella delivers about 100 milligrams of omega-3s. It's a natural chelator as well. And by the way, chelation is a chemical process in which a substance is used to bind to molecules such as heavy metals and hold them tightly. And chelation has several uses in conventional medicine. For treating things like lead poisoning. A study published in the journal International Immunopharmacology affirmed just that, that chlorella helps to reduce blood levels of lead. All right. So, combining these two superfoods together, spirulina and chlorella, these are two of my favorite ingredients, and they're highlighted in the Organifi green juice blend. It's a low temperature process to retain these key nutrients, and also it tastes great. All right. Kid tested, mother approved. This is something that my family, my kids have all the time. Head over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model and you get 20% off their green juice blend. That's dot com forward slash model for 20% off. They also have an incredible red juice blend that has acai, blueberry, and pomegranate, Lots of cool stuff there. Head over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. Now let's get to the Apple podcast review of the week.
1: Another five-star review titled Brain Food by Red Gems. I really love this show. Its simplicity while including so much valuable information backed up with science is the food the brain needs. The variety of subjects is the cherry on top. Sometimes I get emotional on how easier life can be if we just acknowledge and tap into our own powers and this show reminds me that I can. Thank you, Sean. This will always be the first podcast I recommend to everyone.
0: Wow, that hit my heart. That's so powerful. And you just touched on, that's a summation of what we're diving into today. So really, really excited about this. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. And now let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Tana Amen. And she's a New York Times bestselling author, health and fitness expert, Vice President of Amen Clinics, the world's leader in brain health, mentor, motivational speaker, and former neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse. By providing science-based guidance along with her authentic, no-holds-barred approach, Tana has won the hearts of millions with her simple yet effective strategies to help people win the fight for a strong mind, body, and spirit. Let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Tana Amen. I'm so happy you're here.
1: So happy to see you.
0: I was just telling my wife before I came in today, like, I feel like we've seen each other and hung out before because of virtual, but this is the first time I'm actually seeing you in person.
1: I know, it seems weird, right? Nuts, (laughs) bananas. I feel like I have this connection to you. I was telling my husband, I'm like, we're going to trauma bond. (laughs) (laughs) Trauma bond, yes.
0: Yes, definitely. You know, it's so amazing, you know, looking at your story and where you come from and what you've accomplished. It's really remarkable. And, um, you know, I want to first start off by, you just got back from
1: Italy. I did. You're giving
0: me all the insights and the tips some someplace that I want to go for sure. And you're a nutritionist, you're a nurse, best-selling author. You've got like a hundred cookbooks that you've authored as well. <laughs> and, but you're still learning and mm-hmm. you are, this is one of the things I really admire about you is just this curious nature. And while you were there, you had an experience with olive oils. I
1: did, yeah. That was
0: pretty remarkable. Can you talk about that? It
1: was really fun. So um, I had this amazing trip. I took my daughter. My husband wasn't able to go. Um, He calls me a seeker, though, um, Mm. to your point. And so we went um, down to the wine country into Tuscany. And one of the things, it was one of my favorite parts of the trip was olive oil tasting. Mm. And so they showed us how they, you know, I mean, obviously grow the oils, but they showed us from the time that they grow the olives to how they bottle them. And it was really amazing. Um, I thought I knew about oils, right? I write about them. I write about, you know, cook points and which ones are best for eating and which ones are best for cooking and, you know, storing them, but I really didn't know about how they actually produce olive oil and what it really means. And so to actually see this and we did a tasting of them, um, I, was, I was sort of mind blown. Um, so extra virgin olive oil is not just extra virgin olive oil, right? So they, they um they're really kind of like not joking about their olive oil in Italy, and so it has to be cold pressed first press, and the best olive oil comes from one small farm. You can't get olives from all over, mm-hmm. and yet most of the olive oils that we find are from all over the place. The olives come from all over multiple farms, just from all over the EU or even from all over the world, and so that is considered not as high quality. Mm-hmm. And so when we actually tasted them, I, I now I would challenge anyone listening to actually go taste the olive oil in your cabinet. They tend to have a very mild taste. That's considered low quality, even if it says extra virgin olive oil. Mm. When you taste a high quality olive oil and in um, a lot of these places, they grade the olive oil based on acidity and, um, you know, just just many different things. But acidity being one of them. Um, It's very strong flavor. The higher the quality, the stronger the flavor. And it has this aftertaste that literally tastes like pepper. It tastes just like pepper. And so I was really surprised. I've never really tasted olive oil like that, which means I'm not getting really great olive oil even when I think I am. Um, But then there's a lot that goes into, which some of it I knew, um, storing it. And shipping it, and you never want it to be heat exposed, and it should be in glass bottles, dark bottles, not big giant plastic bottles that you're keeping yeah. forever. Oh my god! Um, so all of these things. Um, but I was really surprised at the grading of it, like how how much thought goes into grading these oils and how serious they are about it. And it was really great. So, so. you had
0: like a olive oil sommelier.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. It was so much fun.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. So. If you could, why are they so serious about olive oil in Italy? You know, I
1: think the Italians are serious about everything they do. They're, they are super proud about their heritage in general. So people who are from Rome are incredibly proud about being Roman. People from Florence are incredibly proud about being from, you know, that from Florence in the Tuscan area. People from Venice are incredibly proud of it, and they stay there for so long. So whatever it is that they do in those regions, they're really proud of. And it's, it's really interesting how connected they are to their heritage, to their history. Yeah. So I think that's one reason. Um, but they're, not, they're no joke. Like They're not joking about coffee. They're not joking about olive oil, wine. I mean, whatever it is they do, they really take, they're, they're passionate about it. Yeah. So I can't tell you exactly why with the olive oil, but I think because it's just something that they have exported for so long, um, they're just, they're really serious about it. And they're really serious about how they actually produce it. So it's, it's just really interesting to see, um, you know, how serious they take it and how much they love it. Wow. And yeah. I
0: love that with basically the strength of it being having it more of a kick. It's it kind of like kick. alcohol. Like, yeah, oh, it has wow. a kick. Got you. Got you. So, you know, you being somebody that's an expert in wellness and like you mentioned, you've written about olive oil. Why for you is it such a, a great food or nutrition source?
1: Well, olive oil is actually really healthy for us. I think we've known for a long time, like the Mediterranean diet, right? It's, it's very healthy for you to consume. It's an anti-inflammatory. Um, you know, this idea that low-fat diets, I've, been, I've not been a fan of low-fat diets since I was really young and bought when I was young, I bought into that, you know, low-fat fad. And by the way, I was like skinny fat, <laughs> was never that healthy. I was fit, but I wasn't healthy. Um, and as I learned, as we evolve and we learn, and I've never been attached to my message, I was always attached to learning. So as, as I think science, you know, began to unfold and, and learn and the studies came out, um, we learned that low fat is not a good thing. Healthy fats are actually really important for you. They're called, you know, essential fatty acids for a reason. Mm. And so, um, I really began to, to dig in and try to understand like which ones of these fats are important. Well, olive oil is one of those fats. Like, so it's one of those fats that are really healthy for you. Um, it's anti-inflammatory. But cooking with it at high temperatures is not. That does the opposite because it's not stable. At low temperatures, it's fine, but not at high temperatures. And so a lot of people don't know that. And oh, by the way, the olive oil that they use in restaurants, one of the things I learned, they're using the lowest quality, right? So that's actually not a great olive oil that they're using. If they say, oh, we cook with olive oil, eh, they're probably cooking at high temperatures with low quality oil. So, maybe not the best thing, but most restaurants don't cook with healthy oils anyways, so um so that's just something you have to be aware of yeah um so you don't one of the reasons you don't want to cook with oils that have a low smoke point when you're cooking at high temperatures is because it breaks them down and they become inflammatory,
0: so it's the opposite thing that we're trying to get
1: right, so putting it on a salad is very different
0: mm-hmm. got yeah. it, got it, so well, I want to also circle back because you mentioned about. How it's getting stored, if it's done properly,
1: mm-hmm.
0: why not put it into clear plastic bottles?
1: Um, so it's really important to put it into glass bottles, where it, it actually keeps it stable longer. Mm. So it helps to stabilize not just the temperature, but the actual oil itself. The plastic—I mean, we know about BPA by now. Most people know that plastic leaches, and it's not really that great for you. Um, but also, it with oils in particular, it just tends to break down much faster. And one of the reasons they do that is because of cost, obviously, and they can put it in large containers. Well, that by itself isn't the best thing. Buying large amounts, people will go and they'll buy these huge containers of oil. Well, unless you are cooking a lot and you're going through that really quickly, it's best not to do that. Buy smaller amounts of oil in glass bottles that are dark because it stays stable and it controls the temperature a little better. Um, Doesn't? It's not leaching the bad stuff from the plastic. Mm-hmm. So you want the oils to stay stable, glass, dark and keep them in a cool cabinet. So that's one of the reasons you want to do that because you don't want them breaking down. When they break down, they become inflammatory, which is one of the reasons people often ask me why. Because we always thought that the PUFA oils, the poly, you know, the poly um, monosaccharides that are, you know, the unsaturated oils, we always thought those were the best oils for us. Um, sunflower, safflower, um, corn oil, um um canola, cottons, canola soy soy oh my gosh. um all of these oils that we thought were so good for so long and they're in most processed foods by the way and they're what a lot of restaurants use to cook with the problem with those is that um they're unstable and they break down really fast and they become inflammatory and so they're they're not good for you I and mean, they're just they're not a great source of oil for you so
0: yeah uh, so those are really already just denatured right they're denatured damaged uh structure of those fats so again those are instantly bringing into the body creating a pro-inflammatory environment
1: and so what they thought was going to be a good thing turned out to not be a good thing
0: but did they really i know i don't see i agree
1: (laughs) did they really just like you know i mean well we can get into a whole other thing um the big the big low fat study that was done at harvard they were paid Mm -hmm. to say that fat was bad and so we can get into a whole thing on that, but I'm not, that's not what this podcast is about. Yeah, so.
0: you know, it's so interesting because you live through that that era mm-hmm. where, again, I definitely, when I first was trying to, get, quote, get healthy, I was getting this low-fat, low-fat cheese, low-fat this, low-fat that. And, you know, you might see some results by, you know, managing caloric intake, all those things but you're making your body out of really strange foods. You know? Oh, yeah. And also just the way to go about it, as you mentioned, you know, just looking at cultures with centarians, the blue zones, all that stuff, they're not trying to cut out the fat no. out of a natural food. The higher fat content is actually what's prized.
1: It's super interesting. You just mentioned the blue zones. So I did all of it. So I grew up super unhealthy, a very unhealthy environment, lots of trauma, lots of drama, and very poor. So I grew up eating really lousy food. Um, I can't even say it was fast food because there was <laughs> mostly cereal. Okay, it was just like, the, you know, the the tiger, the leprechaun, uh, you know, the captain, they were my best friends. So th- that's just, you know, we just, my mom was working three jobs just to survive. And so I was a latchkey kid. Um, I just ate garbage. So then as I got older and I started to get into fitness, I got into fitness really young, um, but I didn't know what what health was. And so I did all of the fad stuff. I mean, I, I was, you know, a really extreme vegan for a while, but I didn't understand that vegan didn't mean that I could eat French fries. <laughs> like I was, you know what I mean? So vegan and health are not synonymous. Um, I didn't understand all of the stuff. I did, I did all the extremes. Um, I, um, did the, um, food pyramid. I've done caveman. I've, I did all of it. It's like trying to figure out what is all the fads that came out. I did them. But one thing I did, I, My nursing experience, nursing school and where I worked, I worked at Loma Linda. Loma Linda is Seventh-day Adventist. It's a blue zone. And so I was like, these people are super weird. They don't drink coffee and I can't do this. (laughs) There's no meat on campus and there's no coffee on There's no coffee anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to survive nursing school without coffee. So I bring my big jug of coffee with me everywhere, you know, every day when I went to school. And I'm like, "This this is just weird. Um, but I, when I started working in the hospital, the craziest thing happened. I cherished that education I had. there. It was the greatest education and where I worked. And I remember I worked in a level A trauma unit that was a neurosurgical and a surgical and a trauma unit. And I remember getting some of the patients in, um, 98 years old, 102 years old, and they'd come in and like no wrinkles and no medical history. And I'm like, okay, this is really trippy. This is like Twilight Zone for me. Like, why do these patients look so healthy and young? And, like, they don't have a medical history until that point. Mm. And it's that life of temperance. They live that life. Now, I'm not Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm like, there's got to be something to this. Like, there must be something to this diet and um, really managing your stress and exercising. And, you know, they really believe in in that biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And you have to balance all of those.
0: Mm, oh my gosh. That's the consistency across the board yep. is community and the social construct, which is kind of the opposite of what you experienced. And it's very similar to to my story as well. Yeah. Hashtag trauma bond. Yeah. Um, but if you could, because you're, early experiences really helped you to kind of deconstruct what can be of service to others. Because yeah. I don't think people realize how common it is. We tend to be like, you know, like I grew up in a dysfunctional home. It's like, get in line, pick a number, you know, you're not alone. Right. And you really brought forth for me, and I got to dig into this a little bit the past couple of days, this understanding of the the ACEs score. Yeah. So can you talk about that and also how you got into this field in the first place?
1: So I got really excited when I started learning about ACE scores, which is adverse childhood experiences. And they started studying this, I think it was back in the 80s or something. Um, they started un, like, learning and really noticing that kids who grew up in trauma, in drama trauma, um, they were sicker. They, these kids are sicker and they grew up sicker and they died earlier. And so they started to categorize it and they wanted to understand why are kids who grow up in trauma not doing as well? And so there was a, there was a clear connection to it. And so they started studying it. So they, um, came up with a sort of a grading scale, zero to 10 and kids who have a score of four or more, they actually are much sicker and they tend to get seven of the 10 most common causes of illness. Okay. Okay but kids who have a score of six or higher die 20 years earlier mm, yeah. <laughs> of preventable causes. Okay. So my score is an eight. <laughs> so, so I thought this is really important to know, right? This is really important to know. Um, and it explained my life cause I was a really sick kid. I was sick all the time. I was one of those kids who was always in the hospital. I've had 10 medical surgeries. I had cancer in my twenties that came back over and over and over again. Um, I've been so depressed. I wanted to die couldn't figure out why, like I was wasting oxygen on the planet. And when I look back at my life, it was very chaotic, very traumatic. And there was a lot of unresolved trauma. But when I learned about this, I'm like, yeah, I'm not okay with that. I'm just not okay with this, right? So I started doing a lot of work on myself, resolving some of that trauma, did a lot of therapy, um, as my husband calls me, a seeker. And so doing a lot of that work because I thought, I'm not okay with just accepting that. And so your history doesn't have to be your destiny. And it's really interesting how, um, it explained why I was such a sick kid, but that's also why I went on my journey to help, to help myself, to heal myself. And that's why I wrote the Omni diet. It's why I wrote the brain warriors way. Um, it really came from this journey to help myself, this odyssey, if you will, and to break the cycle for the next generation. Now, my daughter is a one on a scale of zero to 10. My daughter's a one, and that's the goal for me, right? So from eight to one. And so,, uh, but food, how you live, your exercise, meditation, you know, how you feed yourself, getting help for the past, it all matters,, yeah. and you don't have to just accept it.
0: yeah, that's so powerful. And we'll put this study up for everybody to see, but uh, a recent study was done. this is you know a uh, animal study, but they were really kind of trying to see, can trauma be passed down generationally, yep, and they found very conclusively that it was passed down to future generations. And here's the rub, you know, with that, it's kind of being in this dysfunctional environment, but in exposing the animals and us to enriching environments can help to kind of fortify those traumas and stop the process from extending any further and kind of heal what's happening physically and psychologically. And that's what I want to ask you about because there's two aspects to this and the implications with being a more, you know, a sicker person, essentially. More propensity towards dysfunction, disease. Same story here, you know, I was in and out of the hospital with asthma and allergies. And when I was, you know, a kid really still, I was diagnosed with this so-called degenerative disc disease that's so-called incurable. And this is an advanced arthritic condition like that's relegated to people that are much older. And I'm a kid, why am I expressing this old man's inside? you know and little did i know again it wasn't just the practical application of changing what i was eating but this is what i want to ask you about there's two parts one part is the internal chemistry right because experiencing this trauma experiencing living in volatile conditions our thoughts are creating chemistry in our bodies always right so let's talk a little bit about that just what's happening internally that can kind of push us into the conditions like this fight or flight system for us to get sicker easier
1: well that's part of why you just sort of nailed it that's part of why kids who grow up in trauma and drama are sick all the time because they they are they get stuck so your brain especially your brain your brain is developing when you're really young and your brain is developing um when that happens and you're stuck in a constant flight or fight it you're constantly releasing cortisol that actually changes the way your brain develops and so lots of things happen lot nothing good when that's happening, when um, you get stuck in that flight or fight, it's not only affecting your body. We kind of know now that being stuck with that cortisol turned on isn't good. It elevates your blood sugar. It does all kinds of things that are not healthy for your body. It also is affecting how your brain develops. Mm. So you're more likely to end up with things you know, like depression and ADD and all these other problems. Um, and so that's part of the issue. So you just sort of nailed it when you said you know, that you kind of get stuck with that cortisol turned on. Yeah. Those those hormones get turned on but it's hard to turn them off and that's where we get into trouble is that even when you're older you have this tendency i my natural tendency i am always looking over my shoulder like i am always looking over even at 15 yeah. because of the environment i grew up in and where i lived and how i grew up i ended up in a situation where i was assaulted and drugged down an alley right so when you grow up in certain neighborhoods and areas and whatever that's what happens to this day i will look behind my back I chose martial arts instead of dance, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's how you live. It's how you think. Yeah. So my natural tendency is to turn to that. Mm-hmm. So I have to control that, right? So it's, I have to consciously control that. That's prayer. That's meditation. That's that daily practice. Love is a daily practice. Forgiveness is a daily practice. Happiness is a daily practice. I don't think of those as feelings. I think of those as a practice, something I have to do intentionally. If that makes sense, of course. because otherwise those, those hormones are stuck on Yeah. my natural tendency is to do that. Just like my natural tendency is still to want to reach for junk food. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm under stress, that's my first tendency. And it's like, okay, how do I override that? Not that I don't sometimes do that. None of us are perfect, but if I 90% of the time do the right thing, yeah. I can counterbalance that.
0: Yeah. This is essentially kind of making it so that it's not controlling you. Absolutely. You know, because and, you can and, and live in that.
1: You don't want to get stuck in shame and guilt either. Because then you just, you know, that, that's self-sabotaging. You're like, well, I can't do it perfectly, so I'm not going to yeah. do it at all. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I, I made a mistake today. All right, move on. Yeah. Or I just chose to eat that. Or I chose to do that. Move on. It's okay. That's forgiveness as a daily practice, right? Yeah. So I
0: love that so much. But, you know, you, you transmuted your experience into uh, growth you know, by studying martial arts, for example. But if we are not doing those other things to kind of nourish ourselves, to create some balance and some internal understanding and progress, then you might just be looking for a fight all the time. You know, you might be like Uma Thurman, some Kill Bill and just trying to kick somebody's ass every turn.
1: And I think when I met my husband, Daniel, if you you know Daniel. Mm -hmm. um, He is the sweetest person. He's the sweetest, most grounded, most gentle. Like what you see when you talk to him is how he actually is. So when you see him on video, that's how he really is in life. And when I first met him, I'm like, yeah, there's nobody like that for real. He's trying to manipulate me. That dude's not real. Like I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. I didn't trust it. Yeah. And so it, it took time. Fortunately, he's patient and he saw, he saw something in me I didn't even see. Um, but that grounds me now. Now I actually do trust it right there are people like that and so that helped me turn that off and i now i consciously turn that off and there's people like he soothes me um but you mentioned something important and that's growth so there's post traumatic stress we know about post traumatic stress everyone knows about it and a lot of people focus on it but there's post traumatic growth mm-hmm. and so you are a perfect example of post traumatic growth i'm an example of post traumatic growth why are other people in my family not i don't know I don't know why they went down the other road, right? They're still stuck in their addictions. They're still stuck and not trying to make life better for themselves. I don't, I don't know why, but I just knew early on, I love my family. I don't want to be anything like them, you know, and it's just that constant daily practice and not doing it perfectly. I, you I think you, you interviewed me for my book, you know, the relentless courage of a scared child. I definitely did not do it perfectly. Um, But it's that overall trying to make your life better on a consistent basis.
0: Yeah. So good. So powerful. So we've got this internal chemistry. You know, our thoughts create chemistry in our bodies instantaneously. Right now, we could be in this awesome place, you know, having a good time connecting, but you can have a stressful thought, you know, a fear. Somebody that we love is in danger or whatever the case might be, and it's going to change. Every cell in your body is going to be affected by that. Yep. Now, what if you're doing this just on repeat, habitually, yeah. living in fear, living in constant you know, stress and worry? And by the way, I pulled this up. I've mentioned this a couple of times through the years, but this was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, so Journal of the American Medical Association. They denoted that upwards of 80% of all physician visits today are for stress-related illnesses.
1: Yeah. Right? They're preventable. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's the big thing. So, yeah. and you mentioned something. Uh, you, what, what did you say? You said, um, if we're stuck in this, in this cycle of fear, you mean like we have been for the last two and a half years? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. As a society? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think as a society, we've gotten stuck in it. And it almost becomes not just a way of life, it's almost addictive. Absolutely. And so we have to like notice it and choose to put a stop to it. Um I I I don't watch the news anymore. I li- cuz I'm one of those people, I know I'm I get triggered really easily and I'm just one of those people who if I watch the news, I'm going to get irritated. And so you have to choose to put a stop to certain things. I just I noticed that when I go outside and watch my hummingbirds, I'm happy. I turn the news on, I'm instantly mad. It's like <laughs> why? Why am I going to do that, right? So, yeah. um so I try to stay informed but not annoyed. And so I just we have to Notice it. I mean, before you can do anything, you have to ask yourself what you want and you have to be aware of it and you have to take inventory and then take steps to put a stop to it. Um, And all of it matters. The food you eat, everything you put on the end of your fork matters because they also release chemicals, right? They affect dopamine. They affect serotonin. They affect insulin. They affect cortisol. So all of that matters. Um, Your thoughts matter. Who you hang out with matters because people are contagious, as we have seen in society. All of it matters. You know, your spirituality matters.
0: This brings me to an important point. Um, First of all, before we get to that, actually, I want to pinpoint this. You just said that we can become addicted
2: Mm -hmm.
0: to the fear. And this really speaks to the work that you and Daniel have done is looking at, you know, literally how our brains are wired up, right? And how we can get kind of... Why, the question would be, why would we get addicted to something negative?
1: So you grew up in a chaotic environment and trauma. I grew up in it. Now, I don't know for men if it's the same. Um, but I can tell you, for me, um, when there's, if there's a sexual predator, if there's chaos, I had an uncle who was murdered from a drug deal gone wrong. Um, those are some pretty heavy things. People who grow up in those types of environments um, you're always looking for the tiger around the corner. And even when the tiger is not around the corner, you don't really trust that the tiger is not around the corner, yeah. right? Um, when you finally figure out how something that saves you, right? So, so I learned how to protect myself. Well, I'm always going to use that, that method of protecting myself. I'm always looking for that tiger and I'm always ready to protect myself. So it doesn't just go away. You can control it. I'm not sure I want it to go away, but I do want to control it. If yeah. that makes sense. And so, learning, I want to manage it. I don't want it to manage me. Yeah. And so, I don't want to just like if I'm walking. Uh, I'll give you a f- little funny example. My husband created a game on one of our. Uh, it's on one of our apps and one of the the things that we do. Um, and it's it's this happiness. It's to it's to help you actually train your brain to be happier. And so it's these faces that go by and you notice the happy faces and you have to let the the unhappy or scary faces go by and and there's faces of like i took like,
0: that quiz and i had annoyed a, me so i badly. have a negativity bias me i too. had no idea
1: people who grow up in trauma no have idea. a negativity i was, was like
0: no i don't
1: oh i got annoyed by it yeah. i actually stopped taking it i got annoyed i like drop the phone. I'm like, this is the dumbest game I've ever played. I'm not doing this. And he goes, why? I go, cause I don't, I don't care about the happy faces. I care about the mm. terrorist. I care about the guy on the street that's going to drag me down an alley. Mm. I go, I don't want to like, what, why do I care about someone smiling at me? I care about the guy that's a threat to me. Yeah. He goes, wow. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> so, yeah. and I realized like, that's how you get, like, I don't know if it's addicted or if it's just, you have to learn how to manage yes. it. Yeah. So now over time, obviously I, I notice both. Mm-hmm. I want to notice both.
2: Yeah. I but don't it's, want it's the other to control thing. me.
1: Right. Yeah. I right. I want to be empowered to be able to see the happy faces, interact with people, but not ignore the one that might be yeah. a problem.
0: Yeah. You want to be able to draw on that mm-hmm. if the situation calls for it. So but it's, not live there. Exactly. Exactly. And it can be a gift that can help you to help other people. Absolutely. You know, in certain scenarios. But when I say a negativity bias, this means that I in du- taking this test, I recognize negativity in faces a lot easier, yeah. a lot faster.
1: Because it saved your life. So the reason you get addicted wow, to it is because so it saved your I life. I don't
0: like it. You're in my head, you know, like but it when saved I took this
1: test,
2: Yes. And it it's saved so your crazy. life when you
1: were little. And so that ends up setting a template. So it actually affects your amygdala. And so the, the part of your brain that like notices what's wrong got set really early yeah. and it protected you. And that's why you get... I don't know if addiction is the right word, but you're always going to notice. Yeah, yeah.
0: So what that did for me in my life during this time when I was dealing with my health issues, I was very self-centered, you know, just looking back on it. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be self-centered. I didn't want to be kind of looking out for myself first, but it's just kind of like the environment that I was in. Like I had to survive. Like I had to really take care of myself and uh, make sure that I'm okay because, you know, a certain Circumstance, a certain choice, and I could die.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: it, it's for people who don't live in that experience. You know, for example, you know, there are situations where you know a drive-by might happen, right? Right. And a lot of folks, they just you just go outside, you just go for a walk in your neighborhood, you go walk your little dog, all good. There are times when I lived in circumstances where literally I've got to be careful of you know a situation like that taking place. And so, you know, being self-centered was just kind of like a safety mechanism. Right. But by getting myself healthier, and this is what I'm going to ask you about next, the craziest thing happened I didn't really realize till years later. The way that I was being, as far as like being self-centered, it didn't fit anymore. Mm -hmm. When I got physically healthier and people started asking me to help them, I became much more other-centered, right? And you could swing to the other side of the spectrum also and lose yeah. yourself that way too. And I spent a lot of time in that because I was kind of trying to make amends unconsciously for living the way that I lived. And I wanted to help so many people and sacrifice myself, right? And so over time, finding that balance. And so the question I wanna ask you about is, so looking at the, this incredible science really with the ACEs, mm-hmm. and we understand what we're dealing with, our kind of template, Number one, why are we edging ourselves into chronic disease easier when we're higher on that score? The, the internal chemistry that we're creating. Stress, yep. just because you can't touch stress doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's not very real. and might be arguably the most destructive thing potentially for our bodies. But the other thing is having that experience and growing up in, traumatic, in, a, in a traumatic environment, it also influences the choices that we make. Yes. So it's not just the internal chemistry, it's our perspective, it's our psychology, and it's the choices we make as a result,
1: yeah, so let's talk about that, yeah, because your blueprint is different, so your blueprint and how you see the world is super it's very, very different, like I said, I didn't even trust my husband when I met him because he was too nice, so I almost passed him by. He says I tortured him for the first eighteen months. It was really that I just didn't trust him, mm. and so I was broken internally um i wouldn't didn't see it that way because I looked really tough, but it was like. I, 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 you know, this guy was too nice. He just wasn't, he didn't fit my template of what a guy was supposed to be like. They were kind of jerks, right? That's how they were supposed to be. And so when he wasn't a jerk, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's not, that's not trustworthy. It doesn't even make sense. I'm just hearing myself say it. It doesn't make sense. And so, and I remember a girlfriend saying to me, your problem isn't the guys you meet. It's the ones you give your number to. I was like, whoa, like, whoa. And that just, it literally was like cold water in my face. Mm. So the problem was me. It was my blueprint to your point. It's my, it's the decisions we make when we grow up in certain environments. You're not stuck with that. You get to change it if you want to, but it takes work. No one said it was going to be easy, Mm. right? It's a choice. So I chose to do the work on that. And one of the reasons that I chose to do the work on that was when I had a little girl I'm like I am not raising her the same way with the same garbage and the same nonsense. If I have a choice, I'm going to break those cycles. I'm not going to do it perfectly. None of us do as parents, but I'm going to choose to break those cycles, whichever ones I can. And so, a big part of me getting healthy and breaking those cycles was for my daughter was was to change the next generation. Um, but how we see the world is shaped early on, and you mentioned something earlier about. Trauma can be passed on. It absolutely can. They did a study with mice and they shocked the mouse and then they exposed them to the the, um, smell of cherry blossoms, shocked the mice, exposed them to cherry blossoms. And then they exposed them to cherry blossoms and the mice were scared, right? But their babies were scared too. And they never exposed them to the shock. They exposed them to the smell of cherry blossoms, the scent of cherry blossoms. And they were scared, even though they never experienced the shock. So, yes, trauma can be passed on right It's epigenetics, and my grandmother had gone through a war. she was from Lebanon, and she went through a war, and she went through a great famine and to this day, like I'm a prepper like I'm one of those people I had toilet paper when the pandemic came because I was like- <laughs> it was you <laughs> <laughs> but I've been storing food and water and you know supplies for twenty years like that's it's it I never went through a famine, but that's just how I am because my my family. It just was. I don't even know why it was just passed down. I don't know. Yeah. Um. But but we are all of those things sort of shape our blueprints and how we see the worlds and the, how we see the world and the decisions we make, right? So it's epigenetics. It's life experience. So it's nature. It's nurture.
0: Yeah. So to specifically zero in on a, a psychological impact of ha- having a high ACE score,
2: mm-hmm.
0: our choices with what we eat, for mm-hmm. example can definitely be influenced. And what we tend to do in our culture is blame the person. Like, why can't you just do this? Why can't you follow instructions? Why can't you just do what I say? And even we blame ourselves. Why can't I make the choices that are better for me? Mm -hmm. And negating the fact that the way that we grew up, the environment we grew up in, could be very likely is controlling the decisions or influencing The decisions that we're making for what we're putting in our bodies
1: yeah and let's let's be fair um (laughs) um, there's also a lot of factors like awful food is cheap okay so when you grow up poor it it is cheaper so we need to fix that we actually and it's getting better and there are ways but it takes education to, to help people learn how to do that um so so that's part of it the other thing is i didn't learn how to cook my mom was busy working i never learned how to cook so reaching for foods that were processed and already cooked um, or, you know, so, called foods, um, that was easier, right? That was, I didn't know how to cook. And when you're poor, you often don't learn those basic skills. My daughter is an amazing cook. She cooks every single day, but that was, that was something that I broke. Now it's still not natural for me to want to go in the kitchen and cook. I know how to cook. I've written eight cookbooks, <laughs> but I had to, I didn't learn to cook until I was in my thirties. So those are some of the reasons I think when you grow up, like we did, um, you have to, that's intentional. It takes a lot of work to, to get the education, to make the decision to do that. Um, it's not just natural to do those things if we don't make it intentional. So, yeah.
0: I want to ask you about a specific term because once we, once we make the decision to, to eat healthier, especially if we grew up in this kind of pro, ultra-processed food paradigm, by the way, because there's a distinction. You just came from Italy. yeah. There's processing. Like olive oil is processed. It's coming from an olive. They're doing something, but that's very different from taking, you know, some oats and turning it into goddamn lucky charms. Right. Right. It's very different. (laughs) Right. right? And so I want to make that distinction. Ultra processed foods is what we're talking about. And the average American, This study was from almost 10 years ago, by the way. A lot of people are kicking this around now. And I've been pushing this this in the culture recently. Uh, Approximately 60% of the average American's diet is ultra processed Mm -hmm. foods. So this isn't, again, we're not in the minority by any sense. But within that, there's this paradigm. Once we start to get healthy, start eating higher quality food, we make this decision to take care of ourselves. But then we cheat. Right. Right. There's a cheat day or cheat meal or what do you think about this terminology?
1: I don't even like the I don't even like the term. The word itself sets you up for failure. Um, Why are we going to call it a cheat day? So do I think that it's okay to have a meal um, or to have something like when I was in Italy, did I have gelato? You bet I had some gelato. Right. I didn't feel bad about it at all. I looked forward to it, Um, but I didn't. I didn't set up a cheat, like a whole cheat vacation, right? Because that's not it. The idea of doing that, when people set up cheat days, I know people, when I was coaching people um, in nutrition that would consume 4,000 calories of garbage on a cheat day, because they were trying to get it all into that one day. And they would take the six days that they worked so hard and did so well, and they would completely sabotage it with inflammatory foods and re-trigger all of their addictions. Because they just would cram everything into that one day. And I know some people believe, well, it's good to do that because it reminds you of why you're doing it well. No, it's like you just ruined, like, like you're like, it takes a while to kick those addictions to those sugars and those processed foods. And it takes a while. You just re-triggered all of that and all that inflammation comes back and you feel terrible for several more days. By the time you start to feel good, it all comes back now. That's why I like more the idea of 90 10 or 95 5. Like just eat really well 90% of the time or 95% of the time. And if you have something, don't feel bad about it. So for me, it's like if I know I'm going to eat something, we'll split a dessert and it's like, okay, I have a three bite rule. I don't need to eat a giant piece of cake. I can have three bites of that cake and it's not going to do, it's not going to be any different, right? A couple bites of something is fine, but I'm not going to re trigger. I also tend to avoid something i know is like if you're if you're an alcoholic don't go on a binge with alcohol right so i know i'm a frosting freak you'll find me in the corner looking like frosting off of wax paper if like it's like crack for me so i try to avoid those foods that i know are just going to re-trigger it and send me down this like wicked place right but i don't like the idea of a cheat day it's like just have something and move on Mm. and don't don't trip yourself up with feeling guilty about it and just like have it, move on. You know, have a thing, not a day.
0: Mm, I, I've never heard anybody say frosting freak before. Oh, I'm that's, a frosting freak. That's... It's
1: like crack. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, T- Tana, what you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, it's bad. <laughs> oh my
0: gosh, I love that. Um, so, so with this paradigm, I think it's really interesting how we label things. Yeah. Because again, you're not saying don't enjoy yourself. Don't eat foods that you might have like a you know, a comfort food or like a psychological connection to. It's just not making that the end all be all and controlling you again, like you're making the choice to have the thing. So you can still enjoy yourself, have, have a little bit of this and that, a little processed foods. As you said, 90-10 rule, right? 90% real foods, 10% whatever,
2: right? I've not
1: seen anyone do it perfect yet. So maybe yeah. there's someone out there who like literally eats nothing. Ever that's not 100 perfect. I haven't seen it yet, so I I think we just I think we almost create problems when we just tell people they have to do it perfectly, uh, because then there's shame and guilt, and then they don't want to go back to doing. You know, it's like forget it, I can't do it, I'm not good enough. So,
0: you know, I love this so much because you know, for me, I've been trying to get people in the realm of like 70, 30, 80, 20, and working their way up. But you just mentioned what the real issue is is that addictive nature of certain foods, right? And inflammation. Inflammation, that biochemistry, and then the residual effect of you binging for a day and then feeling not yourself, not well for the next day, two, three days. And by the time you're back in the flow, then we got a cheat day again. Right. And there's nothing else in our culture really. And by the way, again, I'm, I want to reiterate this point. This doesn't mean that you can't enjoy yourself no. and have foods that you love. No, It's just when we frame it in this way, or put the stamp on it. We don't do anything else in our culture. So
1: I'm, I'm doing something bad.
0: Right. We attach the word cheat. Nothing language else in our matters. culture is, 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 is good when it comes to cheating. Right. Except when it comes to our food.
1: Right. And language matters, right? It, your, your subconscious does not have a sense of humor. It just does what you tell it. Yeah. So when you use certain words, I don't know, it just, it really affects how you see it and how you feel it in your body.
0: If you're happy, you don't have to cheat. Right. You know? So the same thing again. Cheating on a test, bad. Cheating on your spouse, bad. Cheating on your taxes,
1: bad. Subconsciously, cheating with food is bad.
0: Yeah. So, what does that say about you? You're doing something bad. Are you a bad girl? Right. Are you a frosting freak?
1: Yep. You know? (laughs) So,
0: and it creates this psychological weight for us, right, that is even more difficult for us to shake. Exactly. So, wow, that's so powerful. And again, it's just words have power. That's one of the biggest takeaways from today, truly and you are somebody who knows this very, very well, and um, you know how we label things. And I wanna ask you about this because, again, our past experiences are determining the choices that we're making right now. Mm-hmm. Most people have no idea that this is what's happening in their life. They think that I'm this evolved adult, I'm making my decisions on my own free will, but in reality, you might be stuck in a pattern as a 10-year-old. Absolutely who experienced some kind of a, a crisis or a negative experience in your life, and you're making choices on what you do for your body from that place. Yep.
1: Or so, your
2: relationships.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I want to talk to you about. Our relationships in that context, because our relationships also have a huge impact on our health. Yeah. So let's talk about that.
1: So you said something really important. Um, so we learn things when we're really little, um, three, four years old, right? Where you um, learn strategies, whether they were to save your life or they were just to get you out of trouble. Uh, maybe you learned to lie to get yourself out of trouble, or maybe you learned to hide, right. To stay out of trouble. If, if it, things were volatile in your house, whatever it is, you learn these strategies, um, that when you were very young and a strategy that works when you're four years old, usually doesn't work when you're 40 years old, but very few people ever actually. Um, notice it or take the time to change those strategies um, or pay attention to the fact that they're using a four-year-old strategy in a 40-year-old relationship. right? And so that's where they end up sabotaging um, it because it actually takes some introspection. It takes a little bit of work to notice it and you got to do the work to fix it. So you can actually, and there's some powerful techniques like EMDR for trauma to heal past trauma. I love NLP, love NLP for helping you really. Recognize those past strategies, but then change it to a strategy that's way more empowering for today. Um, so something that's you know really going to empower my life as someone in my mid fifties is not going to be the same thing I did when I was five. When I was hiding, it wasn't even it didn't even help me when I was fifteen, right? When I was sexually assaulted, hiding did not help me. I had to learn how to speak up. I had to learn how to draw boundaries. I had to learn going forward how to use very different strategies. So it's really important to understand that strategies that worked at one point in your life are not going to be the same strategies you use at other times in your life. And it's okay. It's okay to say, that saved my life. I'm proud of myself at that time, but I need to learn something new.
0: We've got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Few people know that regularly drinking coffee has been shown to help prevent cognitive decline and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. This attribute, referenced in the journal Practical Neurology, is yet another reason why intelligent coffee consumption makes the list of best neuronutritious beverages. Another study featured in the journal Psychopharmacology uncovered that drinking coffee has some remarkable benefits on mental performance. The researchers found that intelligent coffee intake leads to improvements in alertness, improved reaction times, and enhanced performance on cognitive vigilance tasks and tasks that involve deep concentration. Now, why am I stressing intelligent coffee intake? This means acknowledging the true U-shaped curve of benefits and not going ham on caffeine. The data clearly shows that some coffee, a cup or two a day, and the accompanying caffeine is a great adjunct for improved mental performance but going too far starts to lead to diminishing returns. So we wanna make sure that we're getting an optimal intake of coffee, and again, not going overboard. But also, coffee is best when it's not coming along with pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, fungicides. These chemical elements are clinically proven to destroy our microbiome terrain. So destroying the very microbiome that helps to regulate our metabolism, regulate our immune system, the list goes on and on. Obviously, we wanna make sure that those things are not coming along with the high quality coffee that we're trying to get these benefits from. And also, what if we can up-level the longevity and neurological benefits of the coffee by combining it with another clinically proven nutrient source? Well, that's what I do every day when I have the organic coffee combined with the dual extracted medicinal mushrooms from Four Sigmatic. And if we're talking about optimal cognitive performance and the health of our brain, the protection of our brain, there are few nutrient sources like lion's mane medicinal mushroom that pack these kind of benefits. Researchers at the University of Malaya found that lion's mane has neuroprotective effects. Literally being able to help to defend the brain against even traumatic brain injuries. It just makes the brain more healthy and robust. So, Again, this combination of medicinal mushrooms plus organic high quality coffee is a match made in nutrient heaven. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's dot com forward slash model to get 10% off their incredible mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cocos, and mushroom coffees. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. You have a very great example of what a shift in relationships can do for your uh, actions and how you function in the world, you know, because I would imagine it's a lot easier for both you and Daniel to make healthy choices because you have each other. Mm -hmm. Right. But, you know, for you coming into this situation where, again, for him, it's 18 months of torture, you know, to kind of get through, break down these walls. And from there, you know, um, in the work that he's doing as well, being able to peer into that and you guys can start to consciously create a healthier culture,
2: right?
0: Right. So I want to talk about the impact that our relationships have on our health mm-hmm. and our choices overall.
1: We We just, we make a really great team. And our kids would say we're super weird. We are weird, but we get along so well and we just, you know, it's, we're a really great team. Like even during COVID, we didn't mind being, I would just, when you're with the right person, it just, it was not that big of a deal. You know, did stuff going on outside of our house bother us? Sure. Were we concerned a little, but, but we were fine. Right. And we love that we make a difference together. And it's funny because a lot of our health and nutrition stuff has evolved together, which is great. Um, We weren't eating all that healthy when we first met. And we just, we really learned and evolved together, which is fantastic. And which is funny because we're both medical people. We thought we knew a lot. Go figure. But we learned that together. Um, And we love that we respect each other enough that so many couples, they're together and it's like one person wants to get healthy, but the other one wants to sabotage it. That's really difficult. I mean, that's a really difficult relationship for us. When one of us wants to do something... Even if the other one doesn't want to do it, I practice martial arts. He has no interest. You know, he wants to do something else, but we respect each other. We support each other. Fortunately, when it comes to health, we're in that together and we have this mission together to really help people and change their lives. And it, it really is special. I mean, it really is, but getting through life together and getting through problems and crises when you are bonded and you have the same overall goal, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, I always feel like it's just like, that's my person. That's my, it's, I'm home. I'm grounded. He's the into my yang. You know, he's just like, it's just always very, um, complete.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. It's such a gift. And, you know, but still both of you is choices that you made. Yeah. To create that.
1: Oh, and we both made really bad choices before for us. They weren't healthy for us. So I think learning from that, Again, not recognizing it and going, okay, I mean, you don't have to beat yourself up for it. Learn from it. Don't take that garbage with you into the next relationship. Like own that that was part of, you know, part of it was you and take responsibility, not blame. Responsibility is one of my favorite words. Um, It's the ability to respond. It's not taking blame. It's the ability to respond so that you break whatever patterns were your responsibility and don't take it with you.
2: Yeah. Ah, oh,
0: this is. That's literally one of my favorite words. Truly, truly.
1: Well, your life is a reflection of it. Mm. Your life is a reflection with all the stuff you've been through, including your physical ailments. Look where you're at. That's that is the definition of responsibility.
2: Yeah. Wow. Man, that's
0: powerful. So, you know what's so interesting for me again? From when I look at myself, I I understand that there are some unique capacities that I have. But I see that in everybody. Like, I think everybody has so much beauty and potential and capacity for so much, but it's a choice, you know? And what was holding me back truly was placing blame, pointing the fingers on my environment, my parents, my, you know, this or that, Um, you know, why won't anybody help me? Why won't these physicians help me with the condition? And I was pointing so much to the external world and was negating the power that I had mm-hmm. to take responsibility, not to, again, to accept that all of this stuff is my fault. The, the stuff that I went through in my life was my fault. I wasn't doing that. I was just accepting that I have the power now to decide what I do with all of it. Right. You know. And once I took responsibility, and here's the thing. What can happen is we'll take responsibility for some. You know, But really, if you take 100% responsibility for your life, the power is completely within your hands now. Yeah. But you can't leave that little bit of wiggle nope. room. You know, and it, it, even within, a, within that as a practice as well, you know, a practice of responsibility. And I want to ask you about this because you've seen this firsthand as well. What happens when you choose to take responsibility for your life and you choose to invest in healthy relationships, investing in your health, investing in service to others, but you have people who... You, may, you know maybe you grew up with or people who are in your past who maybe you're trying to bring along with you to this new life or you know you're you're making all of these changes and for them they're like no, I don't want to take responsibility matter of fact, I want to blame e- you
1: or I want you to take responsibility for t- me <laughs> exactly take
0: responsibility for me as well, yeah, and these are grown ass people mm-hmm. you know these could be people who may might, might even be your seniors, yep, you know, and what do you do in that situation how do you Operate or deal with people who who want to fight you with growth. Who mm-hmm. want to fight against you? Who've got a problem for every solution? Yeah, and they want to stay in that old life. How do you deal with that when you're trying to be progressive and to take responsibility and grow yourself?
1: That was actually one of the themes in my most recent book because it was a memoir. And it was it's you know family members that are stuck there. Um, yeah, I'm a recovered. People pleaser, I guess, but I'm I I don't do co- codependency very well, <laughs> so um, boundaries boundaries are huge. And if you um you know responsibility, you said something super important about responsibility. I was actually really taught this lesson by the person who scared me most in my family. It was the uncle who was a heroin addict. He's the reason my other uncle was murdered, and that was very traumatic for me when I was four years old. But now fast forward, and he's taken responsibility for his life, and he's helped countless people. He became, you know, a coach and was doing all kinds of things and working in prisons. And he drew a circle and he said, this is a circle. How much responsibility are you willing to take? And I'm like, for having cancer? Are you kidding me right now? I was like really angry at him. And he goes, I didn't say how much blame, like how much responsibility are you willing to take? And he cut the circle in half. And he said, 50%. If you take 50% responsibility, the ability to respond, then someone else or something else still has control over the other 50%, which is what you just said. And I was like, well, I don't want someone else having control over my life. And it was like this aha moment. And that's when I really learned how to take responsibility. But when I did that, to your point again, that's when everyone came forward and wanted me to help them. And I learned really quickly that if other people aren't willing to take responsibility for their lives, it's it's like they're gonna, they're gonna try and pull you down. Right. It's way easier to pull someone down than it is for you to pull someone up. So I'm willing to give handouts, I'm not willing to, or hand ups, I'm not willing to give handouts in my family. And I had to be really good at drawing boundaries. So there are some people who simply are not ready or choose not to for whatever reason. And I have to be okay with that. I will help you help yourself, but I will not, I will not enable you in your addictions. So That's just something I have to be okay with. And I have to be okay with not being popular. I was not put on this planet to be popular. And that's okay. So I had to be okay with drawing those boundaries. And, you know, sometimes I just have to say, I love you and I will miss you. Mm -hmm. Call me when you're ready.
2: Yeah. Oh, man.
0: How do you get to that place, Otana? Because I know a lot of people.
2: (laughs) Just tired. I'm tired of your shit.
1: Because I made a promise to myself when I had my daughter that I would not, my mother was very codependent and she exposed me to a lot of things because she felt like she had to fix everyone that was not fixable. And I was exposed to a lot because of that. And I made a promise to myself that I would not do that, that I would not, that I was going to draw boundaries for my daughter's sake and create a healthy environment for her to live in. And that was really my motivation. So every time I felt tempted to do that, I'm like, not doing it. They have to be healthy enough or at least wanted enough to take responsibility or I'm not, not doing it. Yeah,
0: man, that's, this is crazy. All right. We, we've kind of talked about this a little bit before we got started, just the similarities, but that is a huge justification for me because even psychologically, we have to figure out things for ourselves and putting, creating those boundaries. For me, it was the safety of my kids, Yeah, you know, and just being able to like, truly, I can't. Prior to that I was still, you know, hang out with associate go to certain places with people and I know the danger is, is imminent and possible but once my kids got to a certain age where I like I can't let them hang out with this no. family member where literally they might get shot or they get attacked or and then those things happen later on years later those things actually happen and it's just like my kid could have been with you. Yeah. you know, and not understanding why do I want to draw back and protect my kids. And it's just a, I think it's a very logical thing to do. It's not about, you know, it's not a love hate thing. It's just a logical thing to do to want to protect your kids. Absolutely. But at the same time, we still go through this psychological milieu of like, you know, I don't want to leave people behind. You know, I, I love people, especially coming from where I come from. It's just like, you don't forget where you come from. You know, you, you, reach back to lift people up. But some people, you reach back to lift them they'll up.
1: They'll pull you down.
0: Yeah, they'll try, they'll throw a handcuff on you. Yep. And, you know, try to do, uh, you know, a little bit of a- It's the same. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We're not that different. And it's, you know, it's, there's just some people, you know, like I said, you have to say, I love you and I will miss you. You're going to have to figure this out or call me when you're ready. Um, there's just some people who are not going to be ready and you just have to be okay with that. Um, you know, I-, I It's so interesting. It's like when you finally get healthy, for me, it's like, oh, she's such a bitch. Okay. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) I'm okay with that. You know, it's, I'm okay with that. It's, it's, it doesn't, what you think of me is none of my business. Mm. I'm okay with it Mm. because I have to live with myself, my decisions and what happens to my daughter and my family. I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah. Because when people see you, they're just like, that's what they see. Like, oh, you've got it together. You're beautiful. You're amazing. You're successful. They don't know where you come from. Right. You know, and the choices that you've had to make, the boundaries you've had to set and how much you've had to do the work at the end of the day. And I think, and this is what I want to ask you about is, I think it's that, (laughs) it's that challenge or courage that it takes to actually do the work yourself yeah and this leads into your latest book so what was the inspiration why did you feel drawn to to write your memoir
1: Ooh, that was hard um my husband wanted me to write it for a while and one of the reasons i held off was because my daughter was too young there's stuff in there that i felt like she's not going to understand yet Uh, My life was and my book was still the PG-13 version, but there was just stuff I needed her to be old enough to understand because my life was not pretty. And some of the, you know, the trauma we experience when we're young, it's like, okay, that wasn't my fault. Literally wasn't my fault. You're a child, right? But some of the decisions you make when you're older, I think those are the hardest things to overcome because there's shame associated with that. There's guilt associated with that. And I've done the work on all that stuff, but you know, I think our self-induced trauma in our 20s sometimes, that's the worst stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, so I was like, you know, I just, I need her to be old enough to understand some of the choices I made. And that's why I waited. Um, also everyone and not everyone, but most of the people in my book are still alive. And that was really interesting to try to write some of that stuff. So I had to, you know, um, I had to have some heavy talks with some of my family members. And what was fascinating to me is that the people in my book who had the hardest stories to tell, had, they were okay with it. They had done the work. Mm. The people who didn't really have much to worry about, they were like, didn't want their story. I didn't, I didn't do anything like, you know, I'm like, yeah, your story is not that bad. But they're still hiding from yeah. who they are. Yes. It's yes. so interesting to me. So interesting. You know, the people who really were like my uncle you know, the one who was a heroin addict, who was responsible for my other uncle being murdered. He's like, yeah, you didn't really get that story right. It was way worse than that. Mm. I was like, whoa, because he's done the work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. That's a really powerful insight. I think you just mentioned, you know, being in that place where I think they're closer to change or to having a better life. And being that close because of our addiction to the drama and the yeah. trauma and all that stuff, it's just like, it's just, it's right there. Versus when you're so far gone and life is so, so gone difficult. And, you know, because for me, I think that I was in that place. You know, I really, I was, I was by myself, like not to only lose your health and I'm, ba- I'm hanging on by a thread in mm-hmm. college, you know, like I went from a full credit load to just one class, like mm-hmm. multiple semesters. I was embarrassed, you know, and um, I just didn't have anybody. I didn't have anybody looking out for me. And I was going through that by myself. It was a really, really dark time, but because of hitting truly like a rock bottom, like I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to to pay my rent the next month, all the things, financially, health-wise, relationship-wise, psychologically, it was just a total mess. Yeah. And also just where I come from, you know, all the stuff that I've been through. Truly, and you just said it too, there can be two different versions of this to be like I'm tired, right? It could be I'm tired of the drama and I'm putting an end to it. Or also like, literally, I'm just tired, so I'm giving up, right? Right. And so I had kind of reached that place where I was tired, but I had a choice of what kind of tired that was going to be, right? And you know i I look at that situation where things were truly truly rocky for me, like really, really messed up, and I had the ability to see that this path that I'm on right now is just gonna end in something very, very bad, and I've got to make a change. I had a choice to make versus like you know things are kind of messed up. I've been through some stuff, I've had some problems there's some there's some crazy stuff in my life, things could get better, it's just kind of like because of the, you can kind of see the new life, I think. Mm-hmm. I was so far removed from that new life, I didn't know that a lot of this stuff was even possible. Right. I'm damn sure, I didn't know what it was like to feel good. Right. I didn't know what it was like to, you know, not look over my shoulder, right? I didn't know what it was like to trust someone, right? All these things, like, I just didn't know what it was like. But for me to get to that place, I had to work on myself, Yep. right? And so meeting my wife, it wasn't that she came along and like sprinkled some magic fairy dust on me to like <laughs> make me, you know, fall in love with her and trust her and all the things. It was the work that I was doing on myself. You know, I got myself physically healthy, and I dedicated my life to service, and I was so dedicated to growth and all the things. Now I could see that this person is trustworthy and amazing and loving. You changed and your all glasses.
2: Yes,
1: you were seeing life through new lenses. Exactly. That it's really, um, so like you, I went through a really dark time when I had cancer. Um, I actually lost a Playboy deal, so I was like tested for Playboy, was accepted by Playboy, and found out I had cancer in the same month, and it was crazy. So I was like really living life on in the fast lane, Mm -hmm. um, and then screeching halt. And everyone I knew didn't want to be a part of that life, so they were like gone. Um, and I like it's, it's, I thought I had the. World by the tail, and then it was just gone. And so I went through this wicked depression. Um, within a few months, I had had to quit my job, dropped out of school, um, filed for bankruptcy. My mom had brain surgery at the same time. Like it was just a really horrible time in my life. Went into a wicked depression and wanted to die. And so, but to your point, what you just said, and I love what you just said. Um, it was really dark for a while. I mean, it was really dark. I really thought I was wasting. Oxygen on the planet. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Um, I had no idea that all of that darkness that I was going through that that was like to this day it's the worst thing I've ever been through. I couldn't crawl out of my skin. It was worse than having cancer. The depression was, and I just I just couldn't get away from it. Um, I had no idea that everything that I went through during that horrible time would be my purpose today. And so sometimes those dark times are, are your, if you learn from them, if you can turn that pain into purpose, like you did, you turned your pain into purpose. If you can use that pain, um, that became my, that became my platform for helping people. You know, it's, it, I didn't know that at the time. If anyone would have told me that back then, I'd have like probably punched him in the face. (laughs) I'm like, shut up. I don't want to do this. Right. I don't want to be here right now. This is not what I want to do. Um, but but here I am, and that's the purpose in my life, you know, is that pain to purpose. Yeah. You just so for anybody listening, it's been a really dark time for a lot of people, and you just don't know what this can be used for in the future.
0: Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. I I don't think that that's been said even close to enough because for people who are just like a lot of these things shouldn't have even transpired this way and you know we're just spiraling you know out of control. This can also be the catalyst for change What's and next? for transformation and for a wellness revolution because I think that we miss out on the fact that things were already just declining as far as you know uh, the epidemic rates of depression. Everything was already skyrocketing, depression and anxiety and schizophrenia and ADHD and obesity and di- diabetes and cancer and the list goes on and on. Everything is up and we're just allowing it to happen. Right. We have our little nooks and crannies, our little circles where we're focusing on Getting people well, we've got our little communities, but at large, our society is just kind of on a bullet train to hell in a handbasket. This shook everything up, yep. and this could be the catalyst for real change. Because even though we had our little, you know, our little universes that we're creating, our little small universes, you know, um, I think we could be disillusioned to the fact that the whole was hurting mm-hmm. a lot. And so, this can get our attention on that. And I know it did for me for sure. And I want to ask you about this. And, you know, this is a big part of why I do what I do. And also, this is the work that you do and focus on, which is how taking care of our physical health, specifically our nutrition, eating well, how that can have amazing trickle down effects into other areas of our lives. For you, why was it food? Why did you focus on nutrition as a big part of your your work and what you're helping other people with?
1: So I I'd gotten really sick again. So the for whatever reason I had a type of cancer that was supposed to be quote unquote one of the safer cancers to get because it's slow growing, but it kept coming back and mm. kept coming back. And so I had multiple surgeries, radiation treatments, experimental treatments, and I was just it was bizarre. So at one point I was on nine medications some of them to treat the side effects of other medications. And yet if you looked at me on the outside, you'd have been like, she's really fit. (laughs) Like it was super weird. Um, So I was just, I felt miserable. I was wired and tired and exhausted. And I just, I I couldn't sleep at night. It was so bizarre. And they had me on heart medication because my heart rate was so high. And I'm like, this can't be right. And they told me I couldn't practice martial arts anymore. They told me I couldn't really lift weights anymore or run or do anything like that cuz my heart rate was really high. And I'm like, this cannot be right. I'm I'm a medical professional. This cannot be right. I was going through another treatment. And my doctor said something to me. He said, "You should be grateful." And I literally again wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> I'm like, there's a theme here, but anyways, I was like, what do you mean I should be grateful? He's like, "You should be grateful for the medications that they even exist, you know, that that you have them." And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous that this is what we do to people. Basically, they want to put me out to pasture, put me on a bunch of medications, tell me not to live the life I want to live. What's the point? And so I took it as a sign that I was supposed to take responsibility and figure it out for myself. And I went and took 300 hours at A4M, which is the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. And I took 300 hours in metabolic medicine. I'm like, I'm going to figure out what this is. Is it hormones that I need to be focusing on? I already was working out like a crazy person, so it wasn't that. Um, Was it food? Was it, what was it? Well, it was all of it, right? It was hormones, food, exercise, meditation. It was all of it. So when people ask me, what's the one thing you can do? I'm like, all of it. (laughs) So, But I went and learned. And what I really, really um, was sort of mind blown about was how much food played a part. I always knew food was important from the time I became um you know a nurse and into fitness and all that but i didn't really know what and how much and you know the specifics um and i was just so surprised and that was the journey and when i went on that journey to heal myself everything you put on the end of your fork matters because it's either making you better or it's making you worse it's affecting your hormones minute to minute it's affecting your blood sugar which is affecting the decisions you make it's affecting your mood every single day And that's when I really began to understand. And so I didn't leave it up to them anymore. Now, I'm grateful for the doctors I have. I'm grateful for the medication I will take that I will take for the rest of my life. I just don't want to take nine of them. I don't want to indiscriminately take them. I want to take the ones I need. So I just don't leave it in anybody's hands anymore. Yeah. And food is medicine or it is poison.
2: Pretty simple. And most of
1: us aren't eating food. We're eating food like substances.
2: I
0: struggle to call it food. Right. It's not food. It's
1: because it's designed by scientists to keep you addicted. Literally, it's designed by scientists where they remove the fiber. They add flavors. They know the right. They know the right um, chewiness. They know the right flavors. They know the right. um, You know, it's crazy what they know about food to literally affect your brain to make it more addictive than cocaine. It affects the nucleus accumbens to make it addictive so that you choose their brand over someone else's. And oh by the way, they put it on the bottom shelves in the grocery stores. Why? Because your children will throw temper tantrums if you don't buy it for them. So they're hooking your kids. And as soon as I learned that that it's it's about food science, it's not about food. I'm like, I'm not going to let someone else manipulate me into buying something.
0: You know, when I hear something like this and, and you think about like for example more addictive than cocaine yep. really you they, know no,
1: the studies show yeah. that, that some of these foods are more addictive than cocaine there are multiple studies on multiple, that, multiple with, yeah. yeah with sugar and they did one on oreos it's crazy yeah. because the sh- combination of the sugar and the cheap fats and the you know the really the highly processed foods yeah. um they were more addictive than cocaine they put cocaine out then they put the sugar out and then they gave the mice of choice and they went for the cocaine
0: right even mice that were addicted to cocaine
1: went for the sugar instead. went for
0: sugar once it became an option they slowly became addicted to that instead yes right and it's so crazy just like first of all who's getting mice high on cocaine by the way getting you know rick james and these mice right um but
1: they know the meltiness the crunchiness the you know the smell the it's it's crazy yeah
0: so now the question again would come up like is that Look at how people act in the world. As far as like, people aren't getting arrested for trafficking sugar, right? But you know what I mean. But and to answer this question, because I've thought about this a lot, like people aren't out here like selling their furniture or selling their body to get a hit of you know some Twinkies or whatever. But that it's because they don't have to. The accessibility. We are immersed. We're flooded with this cocaine. Not so much, right? right? You know, the accessibility, all those things with sugar, it's and it, again, for me, i'm a, I'm a results person. Look at the results of our society. Just well, look at the results.
1: Well, and one might be more acute than the other. the 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 effect might be more acute than the other. But we also can't you also can't um, minimize the effect of how many of these foods, and not just the foods, but the things we're putting into the air and um, and into our foods and into so many things are hormone disruptors. And so that's a whole nother discussion. But a lot of these foods now and the, and the ingredients they're putting into them are hormone disruptors. And that's just, that's a whole nother level of changing how we think, how we function, how we feel. And so, but that over time, that's over time that's affecting. You know, it's affecting the next generation. You know, when we have children.
0: You've got so many great resources as well for this. You know, we've, we've danced around to a lot of different subjects today. But this is one of the great things about what you're doing and what Daniel's doing is making health more accessible, making education more accessible from like literally the best people in the world. And if you could, can you share where people can get more information, learn about Amen Clinics, and also just even follow you and just zero in on your universe too?
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So amonclinics.com, you can actually find a lot about what we do at Amon Clinics, where we do brain scans and we connect brain and behavior. We hate the term mental illness. We want mental health and we think there a lot of it is brain health. Um, And then you can follow me at Tana Amon. So at Tana Amon on Instagram or TanaAmon.com. And then my husband, Doc Amon. So at Doc Amon.
0: Awesome. And also where can people pick up your
1: book? So it's on Amazon or anywhere you can buy books. So The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child is my most current book. And that's my memoir. And it really talks a lot about my journey and how I got here. And um, yeah, so thank you for that.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for sharing your story. Because even hearing you in the writing process and thinking about, you know, your consideration of other people's stories who've had influence on your story, you know, but it is your story. This is your story. It's your truth and you have the right to share it, but you also have the courage, have to have the courage and audacity to do it. And that's one of the things that's really standing out about you now, especially just being in the room with you. Like, you're a badass. You know, you're a very, very strong person, but you've worked on yourself to have that balance of, of peace and understanding and, you know, to even have the consideration for other people in the process. It's just really, really remarkable. But I'm just grateful you're sharing your story because it's, one that so many people can resonate with and to know truly, and this is one of the things I see for myself, like when you hear people say this, it, it doesn't usually sound right. Like if I can do it, you can do it, like for real, to see where you've come from and where you are and your success leaves clues and you're out here just like sharing so much and it's really special. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. And I, I, I feel this genuine connection with you, Sean. Um, it's interesting. And I, and I didn't know your story. But when I, you know, when I think when someone meets you, authenticity is what comes to mind. And I think that that's, um, if you can do it, anyone can do it too. Facts.
0: Let's go. I appreciate you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you. Awesome. Tana, amen, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. It's such an important conversation and important insight because we have the capacity within us to create the life that we want, to create the choices that we want and thus the results that we want, but we've gotta do the internal work necessary and we've gotta be able to tap into resources that we have access to today to learn how to do these things because oftentimes you know, we can try to carve our own path and make the process more arduous and complex than it needs to be. This is why I'm so grateful for Tana and for Dr. Daniel Amen for providing access to understanding our internal world, our internal psychology, to be able to use technology to actually look at our brains. You know, it's such a great gift that we have access to today. But at the same time, we don't need to do all that stuff. We can do our own homework. We can do our own internal investigation and just pick up some tools from our trusted advisors here and there. But the bottom line is that we've got to do the inner work, right? And that was one of the things that I mentioned during the episode is that it can be intimidating. It takes courage to do that, especially when we can see the potential for better, like right around the corner or right over that fence. You know, it's like the grass is greener on the other side, on the other side of that fence. But the truth is grass is greener where you water it. It's greener where you take care of it. It's not about... Getting to the other side and everything's going to be so much better. It's right now you have the capacity and the tools, whether you realize it or not, within you to create that life where you don't have to constantly be looking at the other side, what's happening over there. Those people have this stuff figured out. We have it within us. You have everything you need within you. You have an entire universe within you, within that amazing mind and body of yours. And your capacity is really limitless. But we're in a society right now that can tell you otherwise, that can inundate you with a belief that you're not enough, that you're not capable, that you don't have what it takes. But man, there's nothing that can be further from the truth. But again, it doesn't matter if you hear this from me or if you hear this from some external voice, you have to find this out yourself. You have to acknowledge this within yourself. And hopefully, Episodes like this and conversations like this help you to direct you back to you and spark that empowerment and that memory, really, remembering, because that's what it's really about. It's about remembering how powerful you are, because I know you've had instances throughout your life where you've seen yourself rise to the occasion, where you've seen what you're capable of, and it's just remembering that. So I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. And we've got some epic shows coming your way to stack conditions, to make that remembering process more automatic to where you're living in that flow, you're living in that empowerment. And of course, sharing that with the people around you because that's how we create real change. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show. Again, we've got some epic shows coming your way very soon, some powerful masterclasses, some powerful interviews with world leading experts. So make sure to stay tuned.